This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card for this week is Tom Glavin. Tom Glavin, number 779, pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. And we will get to Tom Glavin in just a moment. But first, a bit of follow-up. And David, I got a mysterious package. Maybe we can call this a mailbag. However, this is a mysterious package that was not sent through the mail. It was actually dropped off by a friend of me. The- by a friend of the show, meaning David, who came to my house, was taking care of my cats while I was out of town. And then I come back to my computer and I see wrapped in some bubble wrap a a package that has what looks like a Project 70 Tops card inside and a sticky note that says, Matt, to open on the pod. And so here we are. Yeah, and, and Matt, I also gave you the heads up that there might be a surprise here too. With these Project 70 cards, this is the artistic representations of the last 70 years of Topps baseball cards. And I think that they know that if they do a 1988 Topps card or a version of a 1988 Topps card, that basically like my checkbook is open. (laughs) So I ordered one that was a Roberto Clemente card. And I told you about that, but I also told you that there was a surprise. Well, there was an extra surprise because I ordered this card. I ordered two of them and they sent me three. Whoa. So Matt, do you want to open that up? Yep. So I'm opening it up here. Make sure to get the sound, the crinkly sound for the audio. And we have in, (laughs) in beautiful multicolor, in a field of butterflies and rainbows, we have Steve Sachs. This is Steve Sachs, number 319 of the Project 70. And this is the first card that they have released in Project 70 that we have talked about on the pod. So that was why I, even faster than with the Henry Aaron or <laughs> the Roberto Clemente, I hit purchase on this Steve Sachs. Matt, I have some sad news for you, though. Oh, no. What? In the year that they've been doing these Project 70s, they released the print numbers. Guess what is the lowest selling card? Because they they print as many as as people order within a three-day period or within a certain amount of time. It's this Steve Sachs card. Oh, no. Only 700 people order this Steve Sachs card. Hey, limited edition. It's a very limited edition. And because it's such a limited edition, they also do... In each run, they print out 70 refractor cards and one gold card. So I said that they sent me three cards. I just opened up the third one, and I have a shiny Steve Sachs here as well. Because there are 70, I had like a 1 in 10 chance. I think on the ones where they sell sell 10,000, you have a much lower chance of getting the fancy ones. So we have now like we're wealthy with Steve Sachs cards. That is amazing. David, thank you so much. Yeah, I do love this card because as we discussed on the Steve Sachs episode, he really looks like he's in extreme pain, perhaps like intense gastrointestinal pain as he's running to first base, really legging out this grounder. And man, it's, he's it's running, a great look. 
running from the Springfield Police Department. And <laughs> this version of the Steve Sachs card was done by Kelly Risk Graval, the godfather of the West Coast graffiti movement. So thank you, Kelly, for your work. Thank you, Risk Graffiti Artist. And uh, thank you, Tops, for doing, you know, maybe they'll redo the Jay Baller card. Mm. Maybe they'll do a Matt Noakes. This will take its place next to my Kent to Colby figurine in the 1988 Tops Podcast Hall of Fame over here on my mantle. Yeah, the cats will knock it down, I'm sure. That's guaranteed. So thank you for that. But now to our card and Tom Glavin, 779. David, why did we choose Tom Glavin today? Matt, I got a note from Twitter user at Clayton Truder. And Clayton is the author of Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. And Clayton is a professor at Norwich University. And I got this note saying, if you're going to talk about an Atlanta Brave, I'd love to join. And I said, that's fantastic. I also pre-ordered Loserville. Excited to get that when it comes out. And I asked Clayton, who do you want to talk about? And he suggested... Tom Glavin. So welcome to the pod, Clayton. David, Matt, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I, I suggested it because the card had always stood out to me as he just looks like a deer in the headlights in it. Tom Glavin looks about 12 years old in the card. He looks like he's about to go to his first school dance or possibly to overnight summer camp for the first time, or he's been making prank phone calls and he's afraid his mom's going to find out. He, I've never seen such a nervous future Hall of Famer on a baseball card before. And since I wanted to do a Brave, that 88 Glavin card has always stuck out in my mind. And Tom Glavin had such a great career in Atlanta. This card is such a inauspicious start to, to his career. He looks kind of goofy. Yeah, let's look at the front of the card here of 779. I think Goofy, yeah, he just looks like a teenager that's, you know, he's got a kind of a toothy smile that's kind of weird. His hair's kind of parted in the front. Is he at an amusement park? Are those, is that like, is that one of those rides where you can, you line up a whole bunch of people and then you spin it around real fast? Or where is he? What is going on in this picture? He is definitely not at the Braves minor league facility. They played at West Palm Beach Municipal Stadium. They have these very striking blue bleachers there, and those are certainly not it. I mean, so many of the minor league cards are just guys, or cards are just guys with a bat on their shoulder with like, you know, ha- newly built houses in the background or whatever at some Florida minor league ballpark. Yeah, and it kind of looks like he has, he started chewing tobacco early in his career. It's, it has a look there. It's, Do you guys remember in school, they gave us these little pink pieces of gum, which we were supposed to chew to tell if we had been brushing our teeth or not, because they made your teeth te- turn dark if there were stains on them. And he Ooh. almost has that look to his teeth, like uh, <laughs> Chuck Tanner made him to test to see if he was brushing his teeth in spring training or not. And apparently Tom Glavin was not. It was a rookie hazing incident. I don't remember yes. that, but I wish I, I had some of that gum. He has a very high hat. It looks like a an airbrushed print behind him. Like this is an, another one of those Olin Mills photos. They had a, a jersey and a hat, maybe not quite his size. <laughs> If you investigate those 88 Braves cards, a bunch of them have that high hat look to them. We'll have to ask at Painted Cap to see if this is if this is an airbrush job. But this is it's a weird looking card. And definitely in 1988, I'm not sure that I would have 
picked this guy as future Hall of Famer and a guy who 20 years later would still be playing in the major leagues. Also checked the November 1988 Beckett Guide, and this card was 20 cents uh, in mint condition. So was not common, but nowhere near Mike Greenwell. It's pretty surprising that this would turn out to be probably the most notable rookie card in the set. Going to the back of the card of 779, Tom Glavin, pitcher, six feet tall, 175, left-handed thrower and batter, drafted by the Braves, the second round of June 1984, born March 25th, 1966 in Concord, Mass., with Homan Bill Ricca, Mass., Again, we're going to be leaning heavily on the Sabre bio written by Joe Wancho. And Clayton, you were involved in a book with Joe Wancho? Yeah, Joe, Joe and I have worked together for several years. There's a group of maybe, I would say about 50 or so people who regularly write bios for the Sabre Biography Project. It's an effort to write a full-length, peer-reviewed biography of every big league ball player in history. I think we're about 5,000 in above about the 19,000 players there were. Uh, Joe Wancho edited a book about the 1995 Cleveland Indians a couple years back. I did a biography of Joe Roa, the Roa constrictor, who was a relief pitcher on that team, as well as uh, Dick Jacobs, who was uh, the team's owner. And Joe's a great guy and a great baseball historian. And he wrote this great bio. Clayton, you've written a couple Sabre bios, so we're going to have to have you back to talk about a couple more 88 tops folks that you did extensive research on. But Tom, growing up in Bill Ricca, his dad was a business owner, Fred Glavin Construction, and he built the family home in Bill Ricca. Tom worked for his dad's business, pouring foundations, building pools as a young man. Other famous Bill Rickians... Asa Pollard, the first person killed at the Battle of Bunker Hill. One-time All-Star for the Angels, Gary DeSarcina, who was also Tom's teammate in high school, as well as Giuseppina Morlacci, who lived in Billerica, initially from Italy. She came to America and performed throughout the country and introduced the Can-Can to American audiences. At one point, her legs were insured for $100,000, and at the time, it was said that they were more valuable than Kentucky. The state of Kentucky? Yeah, I am. Wow. I mean, considering that Churchill Downs is there, considering it's the home of bourbon, Lexington's a big <laughs> racing place. I'm sure Bolton Green's very nice. That's a pretty broad claim. I mean, we're not talking about Rhode Island here. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Shots fired on Rhode Island. Um, oh, yeah. It's on. It's on. We're keeping that in. But the I think that it was said in jest, and this is also when $100,000 meant something. At Bill Ricca High School, Tom plays both baseball and hockey. And, you know, he was a really good, really good hockey player. In hockey as a senior, he scores 44 goals, 41 assists. And that gets us to our first fun fact on the card. Yeah, the fun fact is that Tom was selected by the Los Angeles Kings in the 1984 National Hockey League draft, but opted for baseball. That blew my mind that he was a public school kid from Massachusetts that got drafted that highly, was heavily recruited in hockey. Just from my familiarity with the regions, the kids who are the elite hockey players tend to go to Catholic schools or they go to other private prep schools. You look at the what's called the all-scholastic team in the Boston Globe, that's like the area all regional team for Eastern Massachusetts. And you'll see the guys going to Catholic Memorial and the various other uh, 
BC High, they all are going to Boston College and Minnesota and all the elite hockey programs. You'll see some guy that scored a million goals in the public school league, and he's going to try to walk on at Curry College or something. Like it's, it, There's such a stark divide that he must have been the absolute Wayne Gretzky of public high school hockey to have been drafted that highly in that time period. Glavin was actually drafted ahead of a future L.A. King, Luke Robitaille, and future Hall of Famer Brett Hull. That was a really good draft, too. The number one pick in that draft was Mario Lemieux. So good players picked there. Fourth round pick, our second hockey draft draftee after Kirk McCaskill. In baseball, Tom played for the Eastern Massachusetts title. In that title game, Tom Glavin goes full showy Otani. He pitches nine innings. The score is tied 1-1. Into extra innings, they move him to center field. He throws out a man at home plate. And then in the 13th inning, he singles and scores the championship winning run. It's incredible. I mean, (laughs) it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Single-handedly winning a baseball game. Anytime I've ever heard about Tom Glavin in the Boston area, people talk about him. It's always in reference to the hockey stuff about what a great player he was, that he was the next Wayne Gretzky, all these kind of things. There's a, there's a whole legend built up around that around there. It's funny. You almost never hear people talk about him, what a great high school baseball player he is, even though he has this very cinematic end to his high school baseball career. I had, I'd never heard that story before, before looking at the Sabre bio. So along with that fourth round pick in the NHL draft, He's picked in the second round of the 1984 baseball draft with the 47th pick. This is the same draft with former podcast uh, subjects, Oda B. McDowell and Mike Dunn, as well as Mark McGuire. But that second round, pretty good. The 31st pick in the draft was the Cubs, and they took Greg Maddox. And I'm only just now putting together that Greg Maddox had his number retired, and it was number 31. And Tom Glavin was number 47. Uh, This is a thing I was going to bring up at the end, that there was something very normal about number 47 and and very not future star. But now seeing it, it all makes sense. Coming out of high school, Tom has this two-sport future career. He's considering whether to go to college. He's also a really good student. But the schools that wanted him to play baseball were not necessarily good hockey schools and vice versa. He was considering going to UMass Lowell, a seemingly smaller school. Just a few years before that was called Lowell Tech and it was a state college. UMass Lowell evolved into a power in hockey East over time and is a very strong hockey school, but that's really the end of their sporting prowess. They recently moved up to division one basketball. I mean, as a baseball school, I'm guessing it was a D two or probably a D school at that point. So it would have been quite the drop off. I mean, there are so few players from New England who end up playing Major League Baseball, let alone getting drafted. There was a kid from from my home state of Vermont who, uh, who got picked in the fourth round this year. And it was the first kid of any kind that had been drafted from Vermont in like six or seven years. I mean, the kids play in, in, in New England, play 16, maybe 20 game high school seasons. It's cold so much of the year. They're at such a radical disadvantage. The idea that, that a guy who's a Hall of Fame baseball player in this relatively recent past came from Massachusetts is a remarkable thing. If you go on baseball reference and look at baseball players from Massachusetts or New Hampshire or Vermont, they're largely guys that played like during the Taft administration. So the idea that a big league (laughs) player, a a major who had a major career comes out of New England in the 1980s, that's really impressive. And part of what makes Tom a major leaguer and makes Tom marketable in baseball, maybe more so than in hockey, 
is that he's a lefty. And that leads us to our second fun fact. And that is the This Way to the Clubhouse that Tom signed as a second-round draft selection with the Braves, June 22nd, 1984, by scout Tony Damasio. Tony Damasio had a pretty good run with Atlanta. Tom Glavin was the first player that he signed. The last player he signed for Atlanta was Chipper Jones in 1990. He worked for a couple other teams, Cleveland, the Cubs, Orioles, and then he came back to Atlanta as director of scouting in the early 2010s. Glavin's dad, who's a business owner, contractor, helps him sign this contract. And Glavin signs for $80,000 as a signing bonus, which is pretty good. He'd go on to make $130 million in his career. But for an 18-year-old kid, that $80,000 was pretty good. It was similar to what the first rounders were getting in 1984. So Clayton, that actually brings us to the topic of your book, Loserville. And we've talked a little bit about your background growing up in the Northeast. What brought about your interest in Atlanta sports? Well, I, I went to graduate school. I have, I have a PhD in U.S. history. I got it at, at Boston College. During graduate school, my areas of interest were U.S. urban history after World War II. And as I was looking around for a topic, I'm a lifelong sports fan. I wanted something that somehow used sports to talk about broader social issues, what's happening politically, what's happening economically, what's happening culturally. So I got the idea to write about the impact of professional sports franchise relocations on cities. So I wanted to find a city to serve as my case study. I thought about Phoenix. I thought about St. Louis. I thought strongly about Cleveland. I almost wrote the whole thing about Cleveland. You can look at it either through cities fighting to keep their teams or trying to bring teams in. And Cleveland is spending all kinds of public money to try to fight to keep its teams. Atlanta's on the other end of things. Atlanta ends up spending a lot of money to become a major league city, both public money and then also corporate investment. So the reason I selected Atlanta is that it basically provides an origin story for the modern sporting business. In the 1960s, the civic leaders in Atlanta, both the government officials and corporate leadership, made a concerted effort to try to make Atlanta a major league city. They had a guy who ran for mayor named Ivan Allen, who was the mayor from 1962 to 1970, who ran on a platform of making Atlanta a major league town. So Atlanta, as a matter of public policy, is pushing to bring in pro sports. And by the early 1970s, they have four teams very quickly. In a six-year period, they bring in the Atlanta Braves of Major League Baseball, the Atlanta Falcons of the National Football League, the Atlanta Hawks of the NBA, and the Atlanta Flames, the first Southern hockey team in the NHL in 1972. And they do this by building two publicly supported stadiums, Atlanta Stadium, which later becomes Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, and the Omni uh, Arena in downtown Atlanta. So the reason I picked Atlanta is it's really the first city you can use to study what the impact of this is on communities. And essentially what I found is Atlanta's response was fairly lackluster to these teams for a number of reasons. For one, it's a very suburbanized city, very spread out. In some ways, if you drive into the city to go to work and then drive home, driving back in for a game is kind of a pain. Secondly, people came from all over the country and had existing sporting rooting interests. You might go see the Mets, you might go see the Cubs, you might go see the team from your hometown. But the idea that you were going to build your affinity around the local team for a lot of people, that didn't make sense. For the native Southerners in the region, they had their own group of sporting passions that already existed, whether it was college football, whether it was stock car racing, whether it was golf, whether it was enjoying the beautiful weather and going boating. So Atlanta did not embrace professional sports as this source of civic identity in the way that its 
leaders had intended. The term Loserville comes from a guy named Louis Grizzard, who was the editor of the Atlanta Constitution. In 1975, he ran a front-page series in the city's newspaper called Loserville, talking about how the teams, 10 years on from their origins, were both a flop on the field, they were all struggling, and also a flop at the box office. The teams were all, actually with the strange exception of the Atlanta Flames, were all failing to draw well. The Flames were actually a good drawing team because hockey was such a novelty. For the first five or so years the Flames were in town, it was just the go-to Friday night date in metropolitan Atlanta if you had some money. That changed over time. The novelty wore off. But Atlanta's aspirations to bring society together, to build prestige through having pro sports, it just didn't happen quite as, as intended. So in many ways, my book is a cautionary tale. I think a lot of people look at the title as being critical. I don't see it as being critical. I view it as referring to a particular historical moment in the city. And also, nobody had tried this before. If you're looking for a path to the major leagues, Atlanta invented one. And 20 other cities have copied them since then, some with more success, some with less success. As much as anything, it's it's an examination of a particular moment and the creation of a particular model of trying to make your city a professional sports town. What kind of team was Tom Glavin getting drafted by in 1984? And, and what was sports like in, in the early 80s in, in Atlanta? Well, the early 80s were actually kind of a good moment in some respects. The Hawks were very good in the very early 80s with Hubie Brown as coach. They fade for a while and then have the resurgence with Dominique Wilkins, the Air Force One team of the late 80s. I mean, the Falcons had a game in 1988 where they drew 9,000 people to an NFL mm. game. The Braves were in the end point of about a 15-year period of doldrums there. The Atlanta Braves had never drawn particularly well, but from roughly 1975 to 1990, they were almost certainly the worst team in baseball. They finished in last place in eight of those 15 occasions. They were next to last three other times. (laughs) They only drew a million fans, I think, three times between 1975 and 1990. Atlanta Fulton County Stadium showed its age very quickly. They built the stadium in just 51 weeks. Most stadiums, it takes two and a half, three years to build them. They just got this thing thrown up as quickly as they possibly could, and it just fell apart awfully fast. <laughs> so it wasn't a pleasant place to go to. The team was bad. So that's the team that Tom is coming into, young left-handed pitcher, coming into one of the worst franchises in Major League Baseball. Maybe there's a chance for a guy to make his way up to the majors. Tom starts out pretty good in rookie and A ball in 84 and 85. He's actually striking out more than a batter an inning, which is out of character for Tom Glavin as we know him in the 90s. He was already a control pitcher, low walk count. By 1986, he starts in double-A and moves up to triple-A at just 20 years old. Triple-A was really the first rough patch for Tom. He, he walked 27 and struck out only 12 in seven games at triple-A Richmond in 1986. By 1987, Tom starts the season in Richmond, and the numbers on the back of the card don't look great, at least his win-loss numbers. He went 6-12, and but he had a 3.35 ERA. He also had another bit of good fortune, the fact that Atlanta was pretty bad. They were trading away and rebuilding. They traded away Doyle Alexander to the Tigers. Doyle Alexander would go on to have a fantastic second half of the season with the, the Detroit Tigers in 87. Atlanta got a young pitcher named John Smoltz in return. So they're kind of putting the pieces in place for a run if they can keep these arms together. At the end of that 87 season, after they trade away Doyle Alexander, there's a spot open in the 
rotation for a young left-hander named Tom Glavin. And his rookie numbers on the back of the card do not scream Hall of Famer, just like the front of the card does not. Six games, two and four record, and a 5.54 ERA. (laughs) 33 walks in 50 innings and only 20 strikeouts. So walking more than he's striking out. This team lost 92 games, so Tom was not alone in his futility. In 1988, it would actually uh, continue to be pretty bad. He had seven wins versus a league-leading 17 losses. So he's at least getting some black ink on that card, unfortunately, (laughs) in the loss column. A 4.56 ERA, and this team had a ton of problems. They lost more than 100 games. Dale Murphy, by this point, is no longer the early 80s MVP that we know and love. John Smoltz also makes his debut that year, and the team drafts Steve Avery. So continuing to put some pieces in place, and the team would continue to lose around 100 games in 89 and 90. But in 1990, the team had an outfield of Dave Justice, Ron Gant, Lonnie Smith. The pitching staff now has Glavin, Smoltz, Avery, Charlie Liebrandt. They look like a decent team going into 1991. And Smoltz and Glavin are kind of establishing themselves as good young pitchers, winning double figures on a team that lost 90 games. And then also prior to the 1991 season, Atlanta picks up uh, Terry Pendleton from St. Louis, who had had a pretty rough season in 1990 with St. Louis. And that takes us to 1991, which is really the breakout season for Atlanta and for Tom Glavin. He's finally now established. He's got his pitches down and he ends up starting the season strong. He gets a start in the all-star game and he would go on to win the Cy Young award with a 21 season, nine complete games and a 2.55 ERA. This season, Atlanta goes from worst to first. They won 55 of their last 83 games to win the NL West, which again, the Atlanta being in the National League West is Still odd to me. Oh, that hurt them tremendously. I mean, I mean, just get, they traveled more than any team in baseball, as did the Atlanta Falcons, who ended up in the NFC West. They're going out to L.A. and San Francisco all the time. What a tremendous disadvantage. So a- anachronistic and um, an anti-globe as it is, the Atlanta Braves win the NL West in 1991 for the first time winning their division since 1982. They're on TBS, so they're on the Superstation all over the country. Glavin, Smoltz, Avery, Liebrandt all have really good seasons. Terry Pendleton wins a very unlikely MVP award. Ron Gantz, a 30-30 guy. And then they go on to win the division every year until 2005, except for the strike year. And they get to the playoffs. And in that 1991 playoffs, uh, Tom Glavin loses two games in the NLCS, including an eight-inning performance where he gave up only one run but got no run support. But Atlanta wins that 1991 NLCS. And in the World Series, they played the Twins, who also went from worst to first. Tom has a a pretty good World Series, pitches a complete game in, in game two, and only gave up one earned run, but Minnesota won uh, three to two. Tom gets his first postseason win, in game five in a 14 to five blowout. But unfortunately, the Twins won that series in seven games. And uh, Atlanta, you know, just continues to win the next 13 division titles. <laughs> so they'll they'll make it back. 
Yeah, so any any mention of the 1991 NLCS causes me great discomfort, but it was an excellent series and a great World Series. To this day, I think that's the most exciting World Series I've ever seen. I mean, part of it is I was 10 years old, so it just meant more to me. I felt like everybody in the country who was not a Twins fan or a Pirates fan was cheering for the Braves in that postseason. It was just such a radical change for them. I, in a, you know, in a little town in Vermont, was certainly for them. And I remember being able to stay up late to watch that Game 7 with Jack Morris and the one to nothing game. I still think that's the best baseball game I've ever seen. And like you said, David, you know, surely they'll, you know, surely he'll be back. 1992 and 93 were similar seasons for Tom, not quite as dominant as that 91 season, still winning 20 games, finishing second and third in Cy Young voting. And Atlanta had some further disappointment in the playoffs, losing the World Series to the Blue Jays in 1992. Glavin was a little bit off in that NLCS in 92, but very good in the World Series. And then after that 92 season, where they finish runner-up, you know, they just go out and sign Cy Young Award winner Greg Maddox in the offseason and somehow don't make it back to the World Series. They get knocked out by the Phillies in the 93 NLCS. This plucky group of misfits. It was like a, it was like a cheesy movie with the Phillies winning the uh, NLCS that year. They'll get all the scruffy guys together and somehow they'll find a way to glue it together and find some wins. And that's, that's what that, that, that to me is one of the weirdest uh, NLCSs I can remember. Recently, Fred McGriff said the 1993 Atlanta team was the best team that he played for. Glavin led the National League with 22 wins. Maddox won 20 and the second of four straight Cy Young Awards. You know, it's tough for Glavin to just have a great season, but then your teammate wins the Cy Young. And looking at these Maddox stats for those four straight Cy Young Awards, he was just ridiculous. 1994, after coming off of a disappointing NLCS, Realignment of the leagues means that Atlanta is no longer in the National League West. They're now in the National League East, but they didn't win the division that year because of the strike. Well, because of the Montreal Expos, they didn't win, who were probably the best team in baseball that year. I mean, that team was just ripped apart by the team's financial troubles and free agency thereafter. But that, I mean, I grew up going to Expos games all the time. I grew up an hour south of that. That's I feel like that's the best best baseball team I've ever seen in person. I mean, I saw a lot of those Red Sox championship teams in person, but I don't think they were as complete as that Montreal club. And I still believe that it would have been an Expos White Sox World Series, and I was very sad that the strike ended that season. And Tom also had a disappointing time because he was the Atlanta player representative, and he was booed by fans. So this... One of the star pitchers on the team is getting criticized for being greedy and is the player representative when the players' union decides to go on strike. Yeah, Atlanta's not what one would call a union town historically, so the, the <laughs> idea that they were so rough on him is not, not... I mean, in many ways, Atlanta's economic development was predicated on being a non-union alternative to northern cities like New York and Chicago. Glavin, for his part, said that the owners wanted total control over the players' lives and the players' careers. And so the strike ends the 94 season early, chops 20 games off of the 1995 season. And Glavin, through the booing, said that he felt like he had a responsibility to represent his teammates and the players to the best of his ability. But the shortened 1995 season, they won 90 games and again win their division, this time by 21 games. Glavin hits his only career home run, so earning that silver slugger. And in the playoffs, again, 
this is like a Mark Grace's career where we just go like, and then he won 18 games for the next 10 seasons. <laughs> um, but, and then he keeps going to the playoffs. And unfortunately, for the most part, they keep getting knocked out, but not in 1995. 1995, Tom pitches well. They beat the Rockies in four games and then sweep the Reds in the NLCS to make it to the World Series against Cleveland. Playing against a really good Cleveland offense, Glavin gets a start in game two at home, up one nothing in the series, and gets a 4-3 win. The next three games are at Jacobs Field. Cleveland takes two of them. So they go back to Atlanta for a decisive game six. Glavin gets the start in possibly the biggest game in Atlanta sports history. And he pitches five no-hit innings, gives up a single to hero of the pod, Tony Pena. And then in the sixth, Dave Justice hits a home run for the only run of the game. That Tony Pena bloop single is the only hit that Glavin gives up in eight innings. Mark Wohlers comes on and closes out the game. Atlanta wins their first title in any professional sport. Well, in soccer in 67, the Atlanta Chiefs won the NASL, <laughs> but that doesn't really, you know, that, I mean. I had no idea. Silverware is silverware. That's, <laughs> That's the, true. Uh, the rule That's on true. this show. So restate it, aside from the NASL, which Carl Heinz Granitza will tell you is a major league, this was the first pro- professional championship in a major sport, let's say. Indeed. And Tom Glavin wins the World Series MVP. So hopefully Atlanta fans forgive him for all of that 1994 booing. Oh, as they forgave Justice, too, because Justice complained during the series about the uh, the team getting booed, that there were empty seats at World Series games, which was true. I mean, I think it's part of the problem with being so consistently good that people don't appreciate it, either your personal success or your team, that people actually like the narrative arc of being good and being bad and being a, a plucky upstart better. I mean, the Indians in 1995 were the cool team in that World Series. They were the hot thing. Everybody was interested in them. The Braves were old hat by that point. And I loved I loved the narrative uh, that they came and that was the World Series they won, playing against the flashy upstart team. They get back to the World Series in 1996, but after winning two games against the Yankees, they drop four straight. And Glavin only pitched in one game of that series. He p- had pitched in game seven of the NLCS, so he only started one World Series game. Gave up one earned and seven innings in a loss. He had some great performances in the World Series and and only won one. 97 and 98, the seasons end in the NLCS. Glavin won 20 games again in 1998 and won his second Cy Young Award. I mean, let's be frank. Those are both kind of pretend teams that got past them, too. I mean, to me, the Marlins still seem like kind of a like not totally real team. I mean, in the, and I think even the Padres fans would have historically said they're kind of kind of marginally major league team. So the idea that those are the two clubs that beat them out was, I think, was kind of rough. Going into 1999, Braves make it back to the World Series. This is a bit of a down year for Glavin with an ERA over four for the first time since 1990. From 1990 to 2007, he started 32 games a season, every season except for 94 and 95, the strike-shortened seasons. So he's just incredibly consistent. And 99, they have a rematch with the Yankees. Glavin ends up missing his start in game one due to illness, and so he starts game three. And he had a 5-3 to three lead through seven innings. And unfortunately, he was kept in a little bit too long. So he gives up a home run in the eighth to tie the game. 
And the Yankees would go on to win that game in extra innings. And they would go on to win the World Series as well. 2000 is Tom's last 20-win season, a second-place Cy Young finish. And this is the last time he got Cy Young votes as well. He was still good in 2001 and two, and Atlanta was still good, but they didn't make it to the World Series in, in either of those seasons. It just really does seem kind of ridiculous that I just like, I, I have to gloss over <laughs> season after season where they just like, make the playoffs, make the playoffs, make the playoffs. I uh, sort of felt like when I was watching that 99 World Series, it sort of seemed like the end of something. It just seemed like the magic with that team was gone a little bit. And the Atlanta pitching staff just getting a year older and a year older and a year older. So in 2002, we have a 36-year-old Tom Glavin, still has an ERA under three, but his contract is up. And John Smoltz's contract is up. And Atlanta signs Smoltz to a three-year deal worth $30 million. Glavin asks for something similar, and Atlanta doesn't bite. He ends up signing with their division rival Mets for three years and $35 million. And just like that, his time in Atlanta is up for now. At that point, he had 242 wins, so he's a little ways away from 300, and he goes to New York. Will he make it? Let's find out. I mean, his first year is pretty rough, 9-14, and 14, 4.52 ERA, and more losses than wins for the first time since 1990. I think there's a lot to be said for just going out on top, retain some mystique as a player. I, I, I really don't – I never enjoy guys kind of just hanging around the – Joe Namath as a Ram, Wayne Gretzky with the Blues or Rangers or whatever. To me, he's going to be a Hall of Famer already with those 242 wins. His resume was incredible, part of one of the great pitching staffs in history. You know, I I don't even think of him as a Met, so I kind of pretend it didn't happen. And I I just find these time periods tough in a guy's career to watch. It also went on for much longer than I thought. (laughs) He was there until 2007. That's a long time, but he ends up playing for a last place team. They finished 34 and a half games behind division winning Atlanta. Of course, Atlanta wins. Of course. <laughs> 95 losses. He gets to play with his brother, Mike, who was called up from AAA. Mike was seven years younger, so they hadn't really played together before on the same team. And he gets called up at, at 30 years old, plays a couple games. Sort of an Aussie Canseco. Yeah. Yes. And 2004, more of the same for the Mets. They lose 90 games. Glavin's under 500 again. 2005, Mets and Tom are both right around 500. And he's getting much closer to that 300 mark. Picks up 13 more wins. And 2004 and 5 don't really re- reflect the fact that he's still a better than average pitcher for a pretty blah team. ERA around three and a half both of those seasons. And then 2006 comes, and that's the best season that Tom and the Mets had had during Tom Glavin's time there. They do the unthinkable. They knock Atlanta off of their perch in the division for the first time since 1991. They won 97 games. Glavin's an all-star. This late career resurgence, winning 15 games, that took him to 290 for the career. And it's his final postseason appearance as well. He got a win in the NLDS holding L.A. scoreless in six innings. The Mets swept the Dodgers. NLCS, Tom went seven scoreless in game one. He gave up three in game five for a loss, and the Cardinals won that series to go on to the World Series. Going into 2007, this is really Tom's final full season. He gets that 300th win at Wrigley Field, 
And he said he was relieved to get the win. And it was also important to the team. At that time, the Mets were leading the division by four and a half games. They fell off a little bit and the Phillies took the NL East. Glavin, for his part, went 13 and eight with a slightly higher than Tom Glavin average, 4.45 ERA. So after this 2007 season where Tom gets that 300th win, he bookends his career and goes back to Atlanta and also bookends that career by going two and four with a 5.54 ERA. I had to do a double take on this. Both of those figures are exactly the same as his 1987 season. Whoa. <laughs> I had no recollection of this whatsoever. I had to like, I was flipping, it, yes, manically back and forth. He only started 13 games in that 2008 season. And then he had elbow surgery. He attempted a comeback in 2009 and then was released. And Atlanta kind of gave him the option to retire as a Brave And he asked to be released and didn't officially retire until 2010. So he still thought that he had something in the tank at 43 years old. Okay, so he's actually basically Apollo Creed in Rocky IV. That it's not (laughs) something you can turn off and on like some damn radio. Like he's got to go out there and fight Drago (laughs) one more time. He thought that he could still do it. but And the the Braves offered him an opportunity to retire. And he asked to be released instead. Here's a guy who first enters the minor leagues in 1984 and doesn't end up retiring until 2010. His final line, 305 wins, 3.54 ERA, fourth all-time in wins for a left-handed pitcher, and all-time one of five left-handed pitchers with 300-plus wins and an ERA plus of 110 or better, along with Warren Spahn, Eddie Plank, Randy Johnson, and Steve Carlton. His playoff career was basically a full season. He pitched in 35 games, had a 14 and 16 record with a 3.30 ERA for his playoff career. He pitched over 200 playoff innings and his ERA got better with each level of the playoffs. So as the competition elevates, Tom elevates his game. 4.61 ERA in the NLDS, 3.22 in the NLCS, down to 2.16 in eight World Series starts. So even though Atlanta only won that one World Series, Tom had pretty great numbers in World Series competition and against the the toughest competition in baseball. David, we've run through the end of Tom Glavin's career year after year of success. It feels like the biggest challenge we had in prepping for this, though, is can we find something that shows like some kind of exciting thing he's doing now or like... More fun facts aside from the fact that he used to play hockey. (laughs) (laughs) He had five kids. Peyton just finished his senior season at Auburn, also a baseball player. He coached youth hockey for his kids team. And I was trying to find what he's doing now. And I came up pretty empty. He's kept pretty low profile. 2018, he sold his Atlanta home. He said it was too big for the family. Eight bedrooms, nine baths. Well, I covered this house in my my podcast of luxury real estate today. Did we did we get to the full baseball field that's included in his home and his estate? Six point seven five million dollar home, limestone floors reclaimed from a church in France, full baseball mm. field that was installed by Ed Mangan, the the Braves groundkeeper. Looks like a nice house. Okay, so that's good. What about with the Hall of Fame? His first year on the ballot, 91.9% of Hall of Fame ballots. He's voted in first time, 2014. And he's joined by Maddox, 
and manager Bobby Cox in that Hall of Fame class. This is the second time that three members of the same team were inducted together. The first time was Tinker, Evers, and Chance, 68 wow. years prior to 2014. And those the Cubs' famed double play trio of poetry fame. I went to Cooperstown a couple of years ago, and it's pretty neat to be on the wall where you just see those three guys next to each other in the same induction year. It's a great tribute to a particular moment. I think those Braves guys, because of TBS, have a tremendous advantage in terms of the Hall of Fame because everybody saw them play. It's not like you're just playing anonymously in San Diego or Colorado or something. Everybody around the country watched those guys a lot of times. They were all household names for a very long period of time. So I think I, I think they all deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. But if even if they were a little bit more marginal candidates, I think the TBS probably helped to bolster them in many respects. I actually would also argue that in a way that hurt Dale Murphy, who I think belongs in the Hall of Fame, because the Braves were so bad in the 80s when he's the face of the franchise, he, in a strange way, ends up getting associated with that team not winning. And the fact that they get so good right after he leaves also, I think, in a strange way, has hurt his candidacy. And I don't I don't think it should. I mean, he was a two-time MVP. He was an excellent defensive outfielder. He was a fine power hitter for many years. You know, a guy getting into his 30s actually starting to age and not being as good. What a novel thing. It's almost like biology working. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's unfortunate he's not in particularly because he was a, a great representative of the franchise and, by all accounts, is a great guy, too. Uh, I agree. And, Clayton, we've already talked about when we're getting closer to the book being released, having you back to talk about Dale Murphy. So as we close the book on Tom Glavin, Clayton, why don't we just give you the last word on your final thoughts on Glavin and what he meant to Atlanta? He was the face of the franchise for more than a decade when they were at an unprecedented national stage. Nobody was as consistently a member of the team or as consistently successful as a Brave. I think in many ways, the public memory of him late in his career is is a non-factor. For most people, he is the Braves of TBS, the Braves of the many World Series appearances, and just such a, a consistent and steady presence on those teams. And I look at his ERA being 3.54, which compared to some Hall of Famers, isn't that great. But if you looked at he played a decade during the chemically enhanced era in baseball, I think that's a pretty impressive number that he was able to stay under four when guys with 4.5 ERAs were getting huge contracts. So I think he's the example or the embodiment of a consummate pro. Clayton, we thank you so much for joining us on the show. Tell us again about the name of the book and where we can find it. My book is called Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. It's being published by the University of Nebraska Press. It is available for pre-order now on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, all your fine online retailers. You guys provided a fantastic link where people can get it from their local independent bookstores. So there's a lot of options to get the book. It isn't technically released until February 1st of next year, but pre-ordering is available now and it will be shipped to your home by some entity. And I look forward to coming back on the podcast around that time. Also, I'd love if people could check me out on Twitter at Clayton Truder at C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-T-R-U-T-O-R. I do a lot of writing for Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research. I write for SB Nation about Cincinnati athletics. And I also do freelance writing in a number of different venues. So I'd love for you to check me out and uh, get talking with you about sports primarily. Thank you for that. And David, thanks very much for this story. And if you've ever had your teacher check your teeth brushing habits with a stick of chewing gum, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. 